Well, I don't know how it was already 6.50 tonight, but we got two questions to go over, so we'll try to get right to it. I happen to, once again, be able to have the privilege of introducing us to a new section in the Baptist Catechism. We're going to be, if, if you have one of those chapel library copies uh, that, we, that we pass out to everybody, you'll see that the section that we are starting tonight is on the person of Jesus Christ. And so we, we just finished up a section in the Catechism on sin, the topic of sin, and now, um, and specifically that is, how sin affected mankind, how it put us into a specific estate in which we properly recognize that all of humanity is born into this world by nature, a child of wrath. And that is the bad news, friends. It's not joy-inducing. It doesn't make us feel good about ourselves when we have to think about those things. And that's most likely why, uh, if, if a church doesn't teach on those things, if they have, if they're attempting, <clears throat> excuse me, to be somewhat noble in that, it's because they don't want to talk about those things. But it's important that we do talk about those things. We need to be able to grasp the bad news so we can rightly understand the good news. <clears throat> The Catechism is now turning its attention to help us understand the Bible's teaching on the person of the good news, onto Jesus Christ himself, the son of David, uh, the Messiah. So like I said, we have two questions to consider, and I figured it would be best to take them individually so we could try to focus on the richness of the answers provided in the Baptist Catechism that each answer supplies. So if you remember from last week, uh, Brother John faithfully taught on question 22, and in that question and answer, we had some details on the estate that Adam's sin placed all of humanity into, all of his posterity into, all of his sons and daughters into. And it was a, an estate that is best described as one of sin and misery. And so question 23 then asks, did God leave all mankind to perish in that estate of sin and misery? And the answer in the catechism is this. It says, God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. Then it cites a passage from Romans and then also Galatians. And so that is some good news, friends. That is gospel right there. And that You know what's missing from that answer? Any action on part of us, any law, any meritorious effort on our behalf or on behalf of a son or daughter of Adam. It is pure gospel, rightly distinct from, from the law. It's not that the law is bad by any means, but that's not what the catechism is looking to teach here. And that's not what it's looking for us to know here as well. We are focusing on these gospel truths where it's separated from the works of the law. So as I was reading over this and preparing to teach on it, I noticed an outline built into it that I hope will be helpful for us in remembering what the answer is conveying. So we're going to take question 23 in four categories. We're going to look at why, when, who, and for the sake of alliteration, wherewith. Uh, but before we get to considering the answer, I want us to think about the question just a little bit more, especially leading into the, to the why of that, that is being answered here. So the question again is, did God leave? all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery. Now, God is God, and he would have been right to do that very thing, to leave people in that estate. He would have been right to leave mankind to perish in that miserable estate, and that's not a popular message in many evangelical churches today. He didn't do that because he is gracious and merciful, but we need to think rightly about God before we can even consider the details of the answer. 
because there are two errors that people tend to make when they think about God and his work of saving sinners. Uh, one of the first ones is that or is related to the reality that many people have a view of God that is too small, that implies that he needs us, that God is not assay. Uh, the doctrine of aseity is rejected, and that doctrine is that which says that God is not dependent upon anything in creation, that he is self-sufficient and he is self-sustaining. Now, there are many who mistakenly believe that God needs us, and they look at that as the reason for him to save, as a motivation for him to save. And as we'll see in a moment, the catechism answer just puts that notion to bed right away. God doesn't need anything. He wasn't lonely before creation or anything even close to that. Eternally, Yahweh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one God in three persons, they have always had communion amongst themselves and for all eternity. It's hard for us to think about that because we are creatures, but that's important too. As if a creature could ever come close to giving the creator something that he lacked. It's impossible and illogical. Uh, God didn't save people because he needs us. And the second common error that people tend to make is people think that God must save, that he is required to save, or at least to make it a possibility, because if he didn't, then, well, he wouldn't be loving, and he wouldn't be kind and benevolent. Maybe you've heard that before. In some way, uh, this is similar to the first error, actually, because then God needs to show his love and kindness, if that's what people are thinking. But again, these these perfections of love and kindness, they have existed in God uh, from all eternity. It is part of who God is. God simply is. And love existed among the members of the, of the triune God. I, I can't even say it properly because I can't say it from the beginning because God doesn't have a beginning. So it's just even hard to, to talk about in that regard. But what this notion does of God not being loving if he doesn't save is it actually makes a mockery of God's holiness. Uh, when people say this kind of thing, it shows that they aren't really understanding the holiness of God, the total sinlessness of God. It is to downplay the offensiveness of sin, to say that God has to save, otherwise he won't be loving. And we know sin is extremely offensive to God. We need only look to the cross to know how offensive sin is to God. I mean, could you provide something of more worth to God than God the Son, uh, than God himself? You, you couldn't. And so R.C. Sprawl said that God is not obligated to save anybody, to make any special act of grace, to draw anyone to himself. He could leave the whole world to perish, and such would be a righteous judgment. And he's, he's right. Uh, God is not obligated to save a single person. That he does is a testimony to his grace and his mercy. And if you remember to one of the questions on sin that we talked a few weeks ago, we talked about how the fall can in a sense be, or in a sense be seen as fortunate, as a Felix culpa, the fortunate fall, because the fall made it so that mankind will know grace and mercy. Two important perfections of God that we wouldn't know if sin was never introduced into the world. So let's consider the first category that's in our answer here, the, the why. Why didn't God leave all of mankind to, a perish in, to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Well, again, it's not because he needs us. It's not because he's obligated to save. It's because, as the catechism says, it says for his mere good pleasure. That's the reason. None of this business about God looking down the corridor of time to see that you'll choose him. To say that is actually to make you the author of your salvation. If That's what happened there. 
no, the reason why God did not leave some people to perish in their sin is simply because it pleased him to save. He, that's a good way of saying it. He himself, Adam is used to just talking to me when I talk. That's what we do on Wednesdays. So <laughs> I'm very used to it. Um, and I, I'm okay with it. It's all right. Uh, he, it, it's for him. He himself is the reasoning as to why he saves. It's for his own pleasure, his own glory, his own reasoning. As Adam said, because he felt like it. Uh, quite frankly, we really aren't privileged to know the details beyond all of that. And we simply just have to be okay with that. God is God. He is free. And we aren't given reasons beyond God's pleasure. So let's consider Romans 9. You could turn there with me in your Bible. In Romans 9, the Apostle Paul is explaining God's sovereign choice and election. And he's doing it in light of Jacob and Esau and a promise he made about them before they were born, before either of them had done any good or evil, any good or bad, we read. And of course, our catechism question is dealing with election as well. And in verse 13, there is the famous line that's quoted from Malachi 1 in Romans 9. It says, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. All of this was so that God's purpose and election would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's what he was saying right before that, before verse 13. And then the apostle Paul does something that shows his skill in teaching. He anticipates his reader's response. He, he knows that those who hear that are in their flesh going to rebel against God's sovereign and free choice. And so let's read, beginning at verse 14 to 18. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You see, some people aren't left in the estate of sin and misery, but it has nothing to do with human will or exertion. Human effort or work, in other words. But God has mercy on whom he decides to have mercy on. He shows compassion to whom he decides to sow compassion on. And also, uh, according to the passage that we read, and we're not going to get into this tonight, but he also hardens whomever he wills as well. The point being is that it's all according to he, what he wills. It's out of his good pleasure. It's as Ephesians 1 says, Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, is the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Secondly, okay, and these are all kind of related. There's some overlap in these. Second, when did God, out of his good pleasure, decide to not leave some people in the estate of sin and misery? The catechism answers, from all eternity. In other words, you don't become elect the moment you believe. No, no, no that's not it. Not at all. You don't, you don't become the elect at that time of regeneration. You don't become one of the elect or chosen. The Bible uses those words interchangeably depending upon the context um, in the moment that you believe. The reality is that you believe because you were chosen in time past. 
from all eternity, as the Catechism puts it. And this is hard for us to understand because God is so much greater than us. But the reason the Catechism says from all eternity is because they are wanting to emphasize a truth about God that we have talked about before in previous Catechism lessons. Number one, obviously, that God himself is eternal. He existed before time as we know it existed. It's impossible to wrap our minds around that. But also, it's not as if God learned who he would choose. He didn't have to... And I, just, I, can't, I can't put... I can't draw a line from A to B there because I'm just... I'm a person. I, I'm, I'm not like God. But he didn't even have to learn who it was that would be chosen because he is God. He knows all things and he chose... Because who he is, according to his pleasure. It's, it's amazing. God never learns everything. He simply knows all things because he's God. And so as it is then, from eternity, in his eternal decree, God chose some for everlasting life. The Catechism cites Ephesians 1. So let's go there and look at that. Just a couple chapters over after the Corinthian letters. Galatians, Ephesians. There we go. You'll see here a little of the, the why category again as well. So the Catechism cites verse 4 and verse 5, but let's read from verse 3 to kind of get a, a bigger picture. We'll read from 3 to 6 in Ephesians chapter 1. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So right, right away, notice this. In the mind of the Apostle Paul, what he's about to say is reason for him to call God blessed, to praise him for this. And, and look at what he does say, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him from before the foundation of the world. So, in other words, from all eternity. Okay? That, and then he says that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, which his mere good pleasure, in other words, and to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So all of it, all of that choosing in Christ and being blessed in Christ is to the praise of his glorious grace. That it happens this way resounds in praise for, for God's grace. Not praise in our ability, not praise in our choice, but praise to the glorious grace of God. And what we should all ask ourselves is this, is does this teaching of God choosing you and anyone who's saved from before the foundation of the world according to the purpose of his will cause us to praise his glorious grace? That's the intention of it. It's not to make us grumble. It's not to accuse us of being puppets or robots. It's not primarily... Uh, to be the subject of debate online and, and the divider of churches, although sometimes that might be necessary to do. It's all unto the praise of his glorious grace. This is good news, brothers and sisters. Now, again, there's some overlap in all these categories, of course, but let's consider the third category, the who. Remember the question, did God leave all mankind to perish in a state of sin and, and misery? Did he leave all mankind? Well, all mankind is by nature a child of wrath dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2 and many other texts. But did God leave all mankind in that estate? And the Catechism states that he, God, elected some to everlasting life. Not all, but some. We aren't universalists. The Baptists in the 17th century weren't that either. Uh, scripture often 
delineates people into two groups when it concerns God's covenants and salvation. So you have, for example, like goats and sheep in Matthew 25. You have uh, goats are being those who aren't saved, sheep being those who have the gift of salvation. The Bible also speaks of the two groups as wheat and tares in Matthew 13. Tares being those who aren't saved, wheat being those who have the, the gift of salvation. We also read um, in Adam, contrasted to in Christ in Romans 5. Pastor Nick spoke about that a couple of weeks back, I believe, in the question that he taught on. Those in Adam have Adam as their covenant head, and they are in need of salvation. Those in Christ have Jesus, have Christ as their covenant head, and they have the gift of salvation already applied to them. And then, of course, the language of the catechism. Uh, typically, when we when we hear the word elect, we, we think of something that we do. Uh, we, we elect someone to an office or, or whatever. And that sense is a synonym for choose. And that's the way the catechism is using the word. It's some are elected to eternal life. But those who are elected from beginning, from before the foundation of the world are also properly called the elect. It's, it's a noun in that sense. The elect are those who are chosen in Christ. You might think of what uh, Jesus says in John 15, when G- where Jesus is explaining to his disciples that he's going to lay down his life for them. And in verse 16, he says, you, the disciples there, in other words, did not choose me, but I chose you. And Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 dealt with this choosing in more, in more detail. But if you're not elect, then what are you? If a person isn't numbered among the elect, remember, only some are elect. Remember, um, even in the setting up of the Lord's Supper, Jesus said about the cup of the covenant, he said that it was going to be poured out for many, uh, not for everyone, in other words. Well, if there's a group called the elect, then there's also a group that's not elected. And theologically, we refer to that group as the reprobate. In Romans 1, Paul talks about God giving people over to a reprobate mind. That passage in Romans 1 where it talks about how men suppress the truth and unrighteousness, how they have a reprobate mind, a mind that doesn't seek to please God, a mind that doesn't love God. Reprobation, as defined by Richard Blaylock, says this, says reparation, a reprobation, not reparation. Man, that's a woke church. (laughs) We ain't talking about that. We're talking about some of those people might... Some of those people advocated for reparations might be under the doctrine of reprobation as well. That's what it is. But reprobation is God's eternal decree whereby he foreordained that one, certain persons would be excluded from the number of those saved by grace, and that two, those same persons would instead experience his just wrath. So the elect experience everlasting life. We'll get to that more in future questions. Those who aren't elected, the reprobate, experience God's just wrath. Some theologians have chosen to say that God passes over some individuals to not elect them, and I get that. But at the end of the day, we know that reprobation is what we all justly deserve. Some get grace according to God's good pleasure. Some get everlasting life. Others will get what is better called everlasting death, and we'll address that in future questions as well. So we've covered why, when, and who. Now let's think of the rest of the answer under the topic of wherewith, or in, or in other words, by what means. Wherewith does God, or how does God choose uh, these people according to his good pleasure? 
how does he take them out of the estate of sin and misery? And the answer is given in that second half of the catechism answer. We read, God did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. And then the catechism cites Romans 3.22 and Galatians 3.21-22. And this is what the covenant of grace does. It does something. It accomplishes an end. Specifically, it delivers people out of this estate of sin and misery and brings them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. And I won't spend too much time here because these things have been talked about in previous Sunday evenings. But all people are condemned under a covenant of works, a covenant in which Adam was charged to be obedient, a covenant in which if he would have kept it, he would have merited a reward. He would have been allowed to eat from the tree of life in the garden for all eternity, and he and all his posterity, presumably. But of course, we know that he failed in that first covenant. We went over that before. And if not for the covenant of grace, we would all be stuck in that, that position of condemnation. But the covenant of grace makes it so that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's the redeemer mentioned at the end of the answer in the subject of question 24. Joel, Joel Beakey says that the covenant of grace is like a gold ring that clasps the diamond of our Lord Jesus. He's, he's the person of the gospel. Let's say that again. The covenant of grace is like a gold ring that clasps the diamond of our Lord Jesus. Okay? Jesus himself is, is the person of the gospel. The covenant, the covenant of grace being the means by which the good news is applied to us, and in that, we obtain salvation as a free gift. It is free from our end, but cost Christ something, obviously. It is a covenant of grace. It's not of our works. So let's look at the first passage of the Catechism sites. So go back to Romans 3. This is 20 and 22. It says, by, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. See, the Apostle Paul is putting it forward that our justification, God bless you, can't be met by our own law keeping. The law is good. By it comes the knowledge of sin. But we can't earn justification from God by keeping the law because in order to do so, we'd have to do it perfectly. And even if we could, which we can't, it doesn't take into consideration that we have inherited guilt from Adam, the original sin. Talked about that a few weeks ago as well. But then the apostle says that the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. So it's not from working, in other words. We can't be righteous from our own law keeping. We can't be righteous in God's sight by doing good works. It's only through faith in Christ, faith being a gift, Ephesians 2.8, that we receive at the moment of regeneration, given to those chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. So turn a few pages over. Let's look at Galatians 3. It's interesting, Romans 3.20, 22, Galatians 3.21 and 22, teaching a similar thing, similar uh, page number. It's actually interesting, I've seen before too, like all the 316s seem to... There's many of those in the New Testament that seem to stand out and be significant. Um, 21 to 22 in Galatians 3, it says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. 
For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So again, the catechism is wanting to set forth that we aren't brought into an estate of salvation by something that we do. We respond to the covenant of grace by believing. But we believe because we have already been brought into the covenant of grace. It's not from keeping the law. The law revealed in type to Adam and then in, in the garden and then explicitly revealed to Moses in Exodus 20 was not meant to give life. It, it showed the way of life. It, as we say, the third use of the law, it teaches us a right way to live. It teaches us you know, the, the standard of holiness, a good way for everyone to live who's made in God's image. But keeping it doesn't save anyone. Life is a gift from God. Eternal life most certainly is. The, son in, the second London Baptist Confession puts it like this in chapter 7, paragraph 2. It says, Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. On their part, he requires faith in him that they may be saved and promises to give the Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. So pastor, and his, he's French, so I'm, I know I'm going to say his last name wrong here. I'm just going to say it like it looks in English. Uh, pastor uh, Pasquale Denault summarizes that paragraph in the confession like this. He says, this covenant of grace is, simply put, salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. Basically, any man is either under the curse of the broken covenant of works in Adam or under the blessing of the covenant of grace in Christ. So again, those two categories of people. And so it is by this covenant of grace that anyone who is saved was ever saved. People who lived in the time of the Old Testament were saved by the same covenant of grace. People who lived, that is, before Jesus ever went to the cross were saved by the covenant of grace, part of the terms of which Jesus would be enacting there at the cross. But remember that this is the means by which God delivered people out of the estate of sin and misery, a plan that is from all eternity. So even though Jesus didn't go to the cross until you know, roughly 2,000 years ago, to make propitiation for our sins, for the wages of sin, people were still saved by his future enacting of it because it was sure. It's a plan from all eternity. Now, there's more that can be said about the covenant of grace, but we'll be hitting those things in future uh, catechism questions. And the very next question that we're going to look at tonight is going to shed further light here as well. So let's turn our attention to question 24, to who is the Redeemer of God's elect? Now, the Catechism is asking this because question 23 states that the covenant of grace is enacted upon by a Redeemer. And so you need to be right about who that Redeemer of God's elect is, because without the Redeemer, well, then there's no redemption, right? That's, that's clear. Uh, and the answer to the question, of course, is the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man and was and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. So, you know, um, when we think of the gospel, what it is, and by the way, if you've ever asked someone, like, what is the gospel, you odds are you're going to get answers that are all over the place, some good, some bad, uh, some totally missing the point of the question. But a really easy and simple way of thinking about it, if we could just distill down what this catechism answer says, is that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the person of the good news. Because he exists, there is good news. 
Uh, we live because he lives to make intercession for us. That's Hebrews 7. We'll consider that in just a moment. Um, now, of course, you have to define who this Jesus is because there are all sorts of heresies out there built upon false Christs, false Jesuses. But the answer to the question gives us a the basis or the base underlying truths about Christ Jesus that sets him apart from any false Christs. There's more, of course, that can be said. There are more catechism questions on the person of Christ. But this answer sets forth some of the, the, the base things that we need to know. And there's a lot of scripture here, so we just need to get to it. Uh, there's three sections to the answer, and each section has its own set of proof texts. So it begins by saying, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's open up to 1 Timothy 2. While you get there, notice the exclusivity of the answer. It's the only Redeemer. There's not multiple Redeemers. He's the only Redeemer of God's elect. We might think of John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he means that no one comes savingly and joyfully with our sins forgiven except through Jesus. This is his self-testimony. And further, he's the Redeemer for an exclusive group of people as well. He's the only redeemer of God's elect. He's not the redeemer of the reprobate. That's the point. That's why they are reprobate even, because they don't have a redeemer. So look at what 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says. This is, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. So there's only one mediator, only one who can go in between God and man to reconcile the two parties, to redeem the party of mankind. And he's the one who does it because he gave himself as a ransom, not as a ransom to Satan or something silly like that, but for the wages of sin, for all the elect, not all people in general, right? Because that would be contradicting scripture. Hopefully that's that's clear. The next, I'm trying to move fast here because I know we're pressing forward in time. I want to have time for questions and answers. Um, the next section sets forth the Christian doctrine of the person of the Son, or the next section in this answer, uh, the doctrine we call the hypostatic union. So look at what the answer supplies. It says, who, meaning Jesus, being the eternal Son of God, became man. And then we have Galatians 4 and John one-sided. So there's a lot that could be said here. We're going to go quick, again, for the sake of time. And understanding these themes are going to be touched on again in the coming weeks as well. But what the Catechism is wanting to make clear here, for one, is that Jesus didn't just become the Son of God. This is the eternal Son of God. He is eternally begotten, eternally generated. He didn't become the Son of God at the Incarnation, nor did he become the Son of God at some point from all eternity. He is eternally the Son. That's not to say that he is eternally subordinate to God the Father. Jesus humbled himself in the incarnation for our redemption, but he is of the, the same subsistence, the same essence of the Father and the Spirit, eternal and uncreated. It's hard to grasp, I know, but this is God we're talking about. He's greater than us, far greater. So Fred Sanders says this about the Son's eternal generation. He says, it is, an, it is in its own way the entire Christian doctrine of God and salvation seen from the angle of the Son's relation to the Father. It, he says, it's 
It's in its own way the entire Christian doctrine of God and salvation seen from the angle of the Son's relation to the Father. It's important that we understand that, that we get that correct. And the Son of God became man. Now that's loaded. There are many ways to become a heretic in confessing that. So we have to be precise. So let's first consider what the text and the answer say. John 1.14, we probably, most of us know that. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of, as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And so we have to remember that in the beginning of John 1, John, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to put forth the reality that Jesus is eternal. And he talks about him, the word being there in the beginning. And that word then from 1.1 is talked about here in 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, lived among us. And so he's saying that the word God, the son became flesh. That's, that's the language that the scripture uses itself. And then Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So a lot of the ways, a lot of ways to get off the rails, rails here to be guilty of heresy. And the catechism is actually going to protect against those errors in the last section of the answer. And so let me just read that without trying to explain it now, because again, the catechism is going to try to save us from being heretics in saying that, that God, the eternal son became flesh and that he was born of a woman. So the last section says, and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. So even when it says that he became man, it's not to say that the, anything was subtracted from the divinity. He, they took it on in, in one person, but the, the divine nature and the human nature coexist in one person. So if you notice the answer, and there's a lot of proof text, five separate verses, and rather than read them all now, let me just put forth what they're all conveying. And that is this. That the Son of God, when he took upon himself a human nature in addition to the divine nature, in the one person, he remains this way eternally. Jesus is God in the flesh for all of eternity going forward now. Hebrews 7 attaches this to the hope of our salvation even, saying that because he's eternally living as a mediator for us, he actually says that he lives to make intercession for us, to the uttermost to live to make intercession for us. Um, and that is, a, you know, the great joy of the reality that we can't lose our salvation because we have the living God, the living God man eternally mediating for us uh, to to keep us saved, to persevere us. And then the other verse, the catechisms, the, all the verses that they all cite, they all testify again to the continuation of the two natures in that one person, that Jesus is the God man. And friends, I, I can't I can't overstate how important it is for us to confess this, these truths about Christ. My salvation, your salvation, the salvation of all the elect is caught up in the fact that the Son of God took on flesh and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. Throughout history, many have erred on these doctrines, but the church has confessed these truths for publicly and uh, clearly and plainly for the better part of 1,500 years, actually, as, as heresy would arrive in the church. The church would come together to realize the doctrines set forth in the Bible, and they develop these creedal statements. And so for the sake of time, rather than going into all the fine details, I just wanted to close by reciting two of the ancient creeds on this topic. This is what the church has believed for, again, the better part of 1,500 years. So I'm not going to explain tonight um, 
what is meant by he descended into hell in one of these. If you want to talk about that in the Q&A, I'd be open to it. But this is what the Nicene Creed says. This is from the 4th century in the second stanza. And it says this. It says, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. And then it kind of gets into the the what Christ did. It says, For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He was suffered. He was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And then the Athanasian Creed. This is the second half of it. This is a fifth century document. And this is what it says. It says that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. And you can see here the, prog the progression, by the way, too. So the Athanasian Creed comes after the, the Nicene Creed. Look how more precise it is, how more, how more careful it is to defend the truth that Scripture reveals. So it says, now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. Again, that doesn't mean created or anything like that. And he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two but one. So two natures in one person. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. And then it rehashes some of those things that the Nicene Creed does too. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He arose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand. And from there he'll come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an account of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith, and it's Catholic with a little c, not Roman Catholic, right? It just means Catholic. This is what Christians have universally believed. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. So that's how the church has, over time, confessed the truth about who the Redeemer is, how he's both God and man. And like I was saying, it's really easy to divulge into sin and into false teaching by thinking perhaps that, you know, he gave up some of his divinity or that the two natures were mixed. We can't fully explain it. It's like the Trinity in some regard, it's, but it's different than the Trinity. And how can we say that, you know, God is one but three persons? Well, it's not a contradiction. It's just totally other than anything else that we are, are, can be that we have experience with. Well, Jesus is different than that. He's one person with two natures. And, and again, it's not a contradiction. It's just hard for us to grasp in all of its fullness because of how mysterious and how wonderful and mysterious, not in the sense of like it's shady or something like that, but mysterious and just totally other than us as as created beings. But it's essential for our salvation because apart from that, again, none of us would be saved. If he didn't do this, we would all still be stuck and under condemnation because of Adam in the, in the covenant of works. But praise be to God Almighty for the covenant of grace and the Redeemer 
who applies that covenant of grace to us. So let's pray, and then um, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to, to attempt to try to answer those. Father in heaven, you are glorious, you are perfect in every way. We know that you don't depend upon any of your creation at all, Yahweh, that you are fully sufficient in yourself. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to have right thoughts about you. Now, it is easy for us to have wrong thoughts about you. It is what our nature, fallen in Adam, wants to do. But you have, in Christ, renewed that nature. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to think rightly about you, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we might give you the glory that that you deserve and that you are uh, so rightly concerned about, Lord, that you would even save us to the praise of your glorious grace. So let us praise you for your glorious grace tonight and always. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So be gentle. But have any, if you, any questions or comments? Yes, sir, Ross. That's certainly part, yeah. So, the question is asked, who is the redeemer? And, you know, there's, what we were saying this morning, the answer ought to take about, you know, five words. <laughs> Jesus. So, what were people also adding to the short list of Jesus? Yeah. So, two there's so there's two areas really that I think that catechisms are created for. One is like you're saying, as a polemic or an apologetic against false teaching to offer correction, but then also simply to teach what is true. It's a succinct way to pass on the faith. And so that's why, for instance, like we do with our kids, you know, when they're young and, and the, the questions are a little bit more simple than this, when they're, when they're really little even, but it's to instill in them the truths of what the Bible teaches as well. Now, I can't say for certain, I'm, that, like around the 17th century, around near the area of London, like what was exactly, uh, you know, was there something, a false teaching that was around there specifically that's unique to that area and that place? But I mean, at that same time, you still do have uh, Arminianism was a thing by that time already. Uh, the Baptists had already divided into the groups of the particular Baptists and the general Baptists. And so there were some Baptists that taught, you know, that that God didn't, you know, out of um, out of his good pleasure, elect some that that is up to their free will. Right. But then the particular Baptist, you know, a particular redemption. So that doesn't but that doesn't really answer your question about the Redeemer, you know, who is the Redeemer. But I mean, if, if you if you get a little sideways on those, then 
you could get wrong about that redeemer too, because it does say he's the only redeemer of God's life. It's not him and your good works too. It's it's just him. So I, I can't say for certain if there was some specific doctrine. I'm, I I have books that I haven't read yet that maybe would shed light on that, but I, it's two things: a polemic, apologetic, or a polemic to to teach against false teaching of the time, but then also to instill in the hearts and minds of believers the truths of Scripture as well. So if you had a question, uh, who is the Redeemer? I think there must have been a lot less confusion on that, but if someone asked the question, um, how are you redeemed? That kind of opens it up a little bit more to by Jesus and by works. I think that might be the next question, actually. Can I see this? Thanks. <laughs> yeah, not in the Christian church, at least, right? You remember, too, that this is almost identical to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It changes in a couple places uh, to teach what Baptists have, what Baptists, I would say, rightly believe that Scripture teaches about baptism and the covenant of grace, even. But um, it, it is, you know, those, the, Pres- the Reformed, Presbyterians at the time, Roman Catholics are at that time as well, too. So it, it's, it's all within that vein. Although Roman Catholics are correct on their doctrine of God, at least on the basis of it. Uh, Carol, you had something? Right. Yeah. Don't miss out on the uh, on the sacraments, right? Don't. Yeah. Right. The co-redemptrix. Yeah, they teach Mary. So, and it does. He's the only redeemer. Uh, Roman Catholics do see Mary as the co-redemptrix. So it could be in that too. Yeah, Sheree? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows like the when or, you know, when he's going to come. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really difficult. So I think we're forced to say, because there's other scriptures that talk about him upholding the world uh, by his power, like in Colossians, right? We didn't read that for the sake of time. The Philippians 2, where it talks about the kenosis of Jesus emptying himself, uh, willingly subordinating himself 
under the Father as because he's also at this now at this point he's also true man as well as being true God is that when we see those texts in Scripture we reconcile it by saying or thinking to ourselves that according to the human nature because according to his divine nature of course he knew the, one of the things that even Nick was talking about this this morning where there's the, the Father has a role Son has a role. Um, the spirit's role. Well, at the same time, there's also the doctrine of inseparable operations because God, the Trinity, the triune God is, is one God. And so whatever the father knows, the son knows, three knows because they're, they have one will. That's the interesting thing about Jesus. Jesus being one person with two natures has two wills. And so why could you say, well, father, remove this cup from me? No, not your will, but uh, not my will, but nevertheless your will be done. Right, which is weird. How do we how do we make sense of that? Well, it's because Jesus in the one person has the two natures. Each nature has a will. And sometimes we see in Scripture um, Jesus speaking or operating out of the human nature. Other times, how could Jesus walk on water? Well, that was nothing to do with his human nature, right? That was his divine nature. So it, it is difficult and it's easy to uh, – and one of the things that the, the – creeds are really good as they they're careful to not say like these things don't mix he, they're the one person the divine nature the human nature in one person but they don't change or the the human nature doesn't become divine it still is really human um, and it could die right like how could god die even well it's because we speak of him in the person right? because we attribute to the person truths that are the same of either divine or the human nature when we speak of the person so you just have to, when your own study, as you meditate upon the word, you just have to, you come to the text and say, okay, well, this must be then according to his human nature. So yeah. when you in human nature, then would you say that, that the Father is not allowing him the divine nature? No, I think it's just a mystery. <laughs> to like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's difficult. Um, so what was I think? So think of it in the context, and this is always a fun debate to have with people, is was Jesus impeccable? In other words, like, was he able to sin or or not? Because God can't sin. And so and so but then you think like, well, if he wasn't able to sin, but he was tempted and tried in every way, well then if he wasn't really able to sin, was it was it really real temptations? But the reality is it's it's both. Yes, he was really tempted, but I, I fall into the camp that says He's impeccable, unable to sin, even though he has a human nature that technically, properly speaking, the human nature can sin um, like Adams did right in the garden. Right. Even though he was perfect, there was no sin in his life. He did fall into sin because Jesus had that divine nature within the one person that prevented his him from there even being any chance of him being able to sin. But people debate about this. It's, it helps it's, God think of like a change. So when Christ took on flesh, he didn't leave heaven entirely. It's not that he stopped being omniscient and omnipresent and omnipowerful, but at the same time he added to himself the human nature. So you have almost like a simultaneously God or God the Son is divine and everywhere and all powerful. Well, he's also in his human nature present in physical finite form. Yeah. I was gonna say like I don't know if I agree with that even because so because when he took on flesh then he's not omnipresent anymore because, but he's at the same time, again, you can't separate Father, Son, and Spirit. So in so much as Father and Spirit are without a body, then it's just proper to say, okay, God the Son is omnipresent as well. But when we think of it, I mean, he's 
in the, he's in the flesh. He's in the flesh forever now. So Jesus in the flesh can't be in heaven and on earth at the same time in the flesh because there's only one body. So again, it's how do you, as, how do we as people try to comprehend all these things? And we just simply can't. So mysterious God is so greater than us. It's uh, Romans 11, the doxology in Romans 11, right? How, oh, the riches and depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. Who can know the mind of the Lord or who can be his counselor? Uh, we just can't. <laughs> Paul can't. And he know he knew much better than we do. So. You say that, you know, you just said that you cannot be in two right? Yeah. Or the, whole, uh, the sun. God the sun. Flesh, the flesh. Sure. And what about Enoch when he was like translated? Say that again? What do you mean translated? When he was t- caught up to heaven? Yeah. Like, like in Genesis, what is that, like seven or six of them? What about that is confusing? So he's only, he's Enoch and then Elijah, right, are the only people who go to heaven that are just people. You know, they don't have any divine issue to them they, where their body doesn't die. And so I, I'm assuming that those two guys have their glorified body already even uh, no they can't right because well maybe they i don't know but jesus is the firstborn of all creation and when they talk about jesus being the firstborn they talk about him having his glorified body first so I, as all my points i don't know but enoch is just a person he's not omniscient anyways or omnipresent anyways right is that what does that help enoch is once he was to go to heaven he was no longer on earth but he wasn't in heaven before that Well, flesh is, is physical. It's it's real. Like I mean, we could touch it. We could see it. Your 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 thoughts aren't physical. Like if if we have um if we have like a mental illness or something like that, if your thoughts are sinful, you can't see your sinful thought. You just see the effects of it. God is a spirit. He's not have a body like men. You can't see God because he's a spirit. But you can see God in the sense of Jesus because he's got a body. Yeah, I don't know what we're talking about anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Uh, okay, Stephen first and then Sue. Uh, I just want to ask this, you know, because I don't, I don't necessarily actually have figured it all out. Okay. But one of the things that I just mostly asked you know, the way, my brother John and I Okay. But as I look into that, I begin to see, like, I always felt like, hey, man, Super is the reform position. And then I was like, oh, they're both reform Right. So, I really don't understand, like, where people even try to get at with this insect position. I mean, Super just sounds like it's right to me, but maybe I don't understand this other because of when. Like, when did things stay Yeah, they're they're the lapsarian views, right? So what they are is the the order of God's decree. So they're not saying when it all happened. They're saying what is the logical order of God's decree? Did God decree to save somebody first, or did he decree for people to fall first? And so people are 
are they're arguing it's not a it's not a argument that I tend to want to spend a lot of time in myself because I again like you're saying both positions are within reform camp and we're just we're talking about something that happened before anything ever existed. So um, so that does it um, what I'm thinking that you just said before the foundation of the world, right? Uh-huh. You know, the From all eternity. You know, when the election happened. So uh, is the question with Emperor that maybe election did not happen before? Or did it happen after the fall? No. They're saying what and what did did he decree for people to fall before he decreed to save some? Right. Uh, Martin Luther, I think, said that he said that there's a special place in hell for people who want to who debate over the Lapsarian views because it's like you you can't know like it, I mean it's mind boggling. So and Martin Luther he just says wild things and gets a passport. So. Yeah. It's right, and it doesn't change anything. We're just thinking about the order of his decrees, which he did, because everything still happened as it happened. We're just thinking of the order of his decrees before he actually decreed it, which we can't get into God's mind like that. Anyways, we're just trying to think with the information that we have. Very difficult. I, I don't have the 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 five. There's five decrees. I don't have them memorized, so I can't think of which ones are the to look at it right now. But maybe we can save that for another time. Stu. Uh, yeah, I was just gonna make a small comment. Okay. Jehovah Witnesses. Yeah. Kenosis. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
model of this woman being right. We apprehend, not comprehend, right? Yeah. Yeah, so. It, it, it is. If you think about all the things you mentioned, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, they all reject that Jesus is divine, too, right? So, yeah, you're right on all that. There's nothing to compare it to, right? I, we tried to, we talked about that when we did the Trinity, like we really shouldn't use any like shamrocks or states of water. Yeah, none of those really, nothing in creation can really testify to the grandeur of the creator. Any other questions, comments? He grew in stature and wisdom and Well, that's one of the, yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the things why we try to be careful too is when we say it, we agree God doesn't change, and so when we say that the divine nature didn't change when the human nature was added into the, to the one person, which again is it's not illogical. Yeah, he says again, so he's with the Father, he's with the Father and the Spirit. But yeah, but he's because he's in the flesh, it didn't, <laughs> but yes, yes. Yeah. It's what Jesus, why Jesus says, if you've seen, you've seen, yes, you've seen the Father, right? So, I mean, not literally, like in the sense that, right, right, right. So, and so in the same sense, then, yeah, then it's still omnipresent because there's a oneness. It's the same struggle that all of our brethren in the past have had, right? Just when it comes to the Trinity, 
<laughs> you have to do a special prayer to unback it. <laughs> yeah. Sure, you had. Yeah, he knew when people were trying to trick him. Or Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't even there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, he doesn't have to be there to heal the son either, or the the centurion's son. He's not. Have to... I saw something that a uh, yeah I saw something that a uh, doctor uh, Richard Barcellus was posting or they were trying to get discussion on and the question was like is God does God fill up space and so the answer is no because he's it's spirit it doesn't fill like fill is a it requires substance so it, so it's just hard to think of these metaphysical truth it's it, difficult but it's easy to be a No. <laughs> the immutability of God does not make him a dead idea that doesn't act. He acts. So we have to reconcile the immutable nature of God that cannot be moved He's a... away, but that he is still alive and does. He does act. He's pure act, right? Aquinas. He's, yeah. yeah, there you go. Isaac? We are humans, God is God. 
we are not like God, we cannot be in two places at once, first of all. And God can do anything. We yes, need to totally understand well. why he does it. We just need to understand he does it. Faith why of a child. <laughs> about that? It's we're God. not arguing, we're simply it's God. pontificating. <laughs> Anything else, guys? But it's good to understand, right? Because we want to. We want to, but yeah. we never can understand. Not fully. It's not fully. Right. Amen. Anything else? It's 8 o'clock. Sorry about that. Almost. All right.